My name is Caleb Hunt. I'm the pastor at Grifton United Methodist Church, and welcome to the End of Words podcast, the home of our weekly sermons. If you are in the eastern North Carolina area and would like to come visit us, we have weekly worship services at 11 a.m. in our sanctuary on McRae Street, and we would love to have a chance to meet you in person. In the meantime, though, we pray that this message might help you in your own life, in your own context, to refocus on the story of Jesus. Our first and only scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 1. We're reading Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. Luke chapter 1, 46 through 55. Hear these words from the Gospel of Luke. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. I'm assuming most of y'all have heard the word sketchy before. I think it's kind of my generation word, uh, mid-millennial. It basically means that something is off or weird in maybe a slightly dangerous way. It's a bit risky. Like if you were trying to change a light bulb that was 30 feet off the ground and the only ladder that you had was ancient rusting and the legs weren't all the same length, you might say, careful, that ladder is a bit sketchy. In some ways, it's a little bit sketchy to do a series of sermons based on hymns. And why might that be? Well, traditionally, sermons are based on the Bible, and for good reason, right? We Christians believe that the Bible is the Word of God, that it is, in some way that is unique to itself, God-breathed. That's how Paul put it to Timothy. The Bible is, to an extent that is unlike any other book, useful for teaching, rebuking, training, and correcting in righteousness, that the servant of God may be fully equipped for every good work. Hymns are not that. They are not the Word of God. They are not God-breathed, at least not in the same way that the Bible is. So it's a bit sketchy to write a sermon based on a hymn. What if the hymn is something that's just wrong in it? Or if it's not wrong, then just not quite right? That could definitely happen. These are just songs, after all, poems, essentially, created by, I'm sure, well-meaning, but ultimately fallible humans. Now, I had thought about this beforehand, before starting the series, and I've tried to mitigate this danger by, first of all, only selecting songs that I thought were very theologically rich and very faithful to biblical themes, and secondly, by trying to base my sermons ultimately not on the song itself, but on the biblical passages that I think are lying behind the words of the song. But as I have researched, reflected, and prepared for the different sermons in this series, I have come across certain hymns and songs and certain lyrics that I feel like are Well, a bit sketchy, I guess, weird, and maybe a slightly dangerous way. They missed the mark, in my humble opinion. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at a few Christmas songs, really just a few lyrics within those songs, that I think are a little bit off, that are a little bit sketchy. Before we begin, I want to issue a couple of disclaimers, and I want to clarify why we are doing this, why I think critiquing these songs is a worthwhile thing to do on a Sunday morning, or whenever you're watching this. Because the point of this is not to just bash your favorite Christmas songs, to take some sort of theological technicality and ruin a song that you grew up singing and loving. That is not my goal this morning. For the record, I actually really like, really, really like two out of these three songs, and I kind of like the third one even that we're going to talk about today. They are songs that I grew up singing and loving. I don't think that they are all bad, that they're evil or something, or that we need to stop singing them. The fact that I think certain aspects of the song might miss the mark doesn't even mean that the rest of the song or the song as a whole isn't really great. So what is the point of this exercise? Well, my ultimate goal 
in teaching and preaching the Bible is to equip y'all, to equip people with what I like to think of as a biblical imagination. I used to think of it as a biblical worldview, but in my experience, the term worldview, like so many good words, has become just a little bit loaded. It's been co-opted just a bit by like the culture wars. Anyway, I've just moved on towards biblical imagination. It sounds more fun at the very least, right? By a biblical imagination, I mean that I want you to think about reality in the same way that the Bible does. I want you to picture the world, to image the world, hence biblical imagination, in the same way that scripture does. So for instance, what does the Bible think about the nature and the value of human beings? What image of human beings does the Bible depict? They are image bearers of God, according to Genesis 1, here on earth to represent to the rest of the universe what the creator is like. Thus, they are of incalculable worth and they have a really big job to do. That is the view of the human being, of yourself, that I want you to have because I believe that it matches the Bible's. And when you have a really solid biblical imagination, when you see yourself, other people, the world, and God through the same kind of lens that the Bible does, it's actually, it's quite freeing. You can listen to really whatever Christmas songs that you want, whatever whatever hymns you'd like to, because you'll be able to hear them through the lens of, of your own biblical imagination. Pretty sure I just mixed a metaphor there. Hear them through the lens. But you know what I'm talking about. You'll be able to discern which lyrics ring true to the themes and the perspectives of the Bible and which miss the mark, which are just a bit sketchy. If you can develop this skill, then you can use it all the time in your everyday life. In fact, you should use it every time you listen to one of my sermons because I'm not perfect. I've tried really hard to cultivate a biblical imagination and to allow that biblical imagination to govern my sermons, but I don't always get it right. Parts of my sermons are going to miss the mark. And if you have cultivated your own biblical imagination, then you can listen to any of my sermons or the sermon of any other pastor and think to yourself, you know what? That was mostly a really great sermon. But I I do think that Caleb missed the mark just a bit when he said such and such. It's a very important skill to have as a disciple of Jesus to be discerning and discriminating when listening to the words and the teachings of others, not because we are naturally suspicious of other people or we think they are trying to get one over on us or something, but just because we are all fallible human beings who sometimes knock it out of the park and sometimes are a bit mistaken. So what we are doing this morning is we are practicing. We are flexing our biblical imaginations by looking at some songs that we know and love and seeing where they might miss the mark a bit. We're going to look at three songs, um, just one right after the other. The first song is Away in a Manger. Again, if you love that song, that's great. I love it too, particularly in a kind of nostalgic way. I have a quick little story about this song, a time that I had to give an impromptu performance of it, actually. It was at a Punt family reunion one year, and my dad's side of the family, the Punts, they are... They're very competitive, and they like to sort of play pranks on one another, most of the time in good fun, most of the time. And so at some point during this reunion, all of the guys went out bowling. And to make things more interesting, we split into two teams, the cousins versus the adults, the uncles, and we put a little wager on the last game. Whichever team had the lower cumulative score at the end of the last game had to get up and sing all four verses of Away in a Manger as a group in front of the entire family right before Christmas dinner, which would have been like 30 or 40 people. And we were all, you know, especially kind of at this point, uh, late high school, early college for most of us, you know, we were all like kind of like man's man. None of us were singers. And so we thought that this would be a sufficiently humiliating experience for the losers. Well, the cousins, my team, ended up losing. And the uncles are all gloating and cracking jokes about the surprise performance that we're going to have to give right before Christmas dinner. And then, you know, right before grandpa is going to pray over the meal, we stand up and sheepishly say something like, guys, well, we have something that we'd like to share with y'all. Took out our printed lyrics from our back pockets and started singing Away in the Manger. (laughs) Half the family was in tears by the time that we finished. 
because it's not a hard melody. So we actually sounded pretty okay, and the family just ended up being quite moved by hearing all of these sort of surly young men in their late teens and early 20s sing about the baby Jesus. Even some of our uncles, who thought we were just going to be mortally embarrassed, ended up, you know, wiping away a single tear and saying, like, wow, that was, uh, that was actually pretty great. That was, that was pretty profound. It really ended up backfiring on them. So all that to say, uh, I really like this song. But there is one particular line in the song that I've always thought was a little sketchy that I think misses the mark just a little bit. It's in the second verse, which goes, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. A few weeks ago, we did a sermon series on heresies. It was called Bad News. Uh, It was on historical errors, false teachings that the church dealt with hundreds of years ago, but that still crop up now and again in churches today. And in one of those sermons, we talked about docetism, the docetics. The docetics were a group of early Christians who claimed that Jesus only seemed to be human. Dokeo is the Greek verb meaning to seem or to appear, hence the docetics. They said that Jesus only looked human. Really, he was pure spirit. His physical body was not actually a body. It was a projection or a mirage of some sort. And the docetics believed this because they hated creation. They hated material reality, this physical world around us. They thought it was too stinky and dirty, filled with too much pain, suffering, and indignity. It was either a mistake or an act of malevolence. And so they believed that the pure and holy and true God would never actually take on flesh, never actually become human. He only seemed to be human long enough to show all of the rest of us how to escape the terrible physical world around us. But the early church decided that the docetics were wrong. Having read the Bible very thoroughly, having developed a biblical imagination, the councils of the first few centuries decided, first of all, the physical world was not a horrible, dirty place. After all, Genesis tells us that God loves his creation, says it over and over and over again. They further decided that Jesus did not only seem to be human, but was fully God and fully human. Indeed, he suffered in every way that we do. He was tempted in every way like we are, the Bible tells us. And this only makes sense if we take John chapter 1, verse 14 very seriously. And the word became flesh. So in this line, in a way in the manger, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. And this line, I personally hear a little strand of docetism that has survived to the modern world because babies, real human babies, they cry all the time, but especially when mooing cows rudely awake them from their nap. So why wouldn't the baby Jesus cry? The line sounds to me like the kind of modern docetism that encourages us to think that what was cool about Jesus was that he was ultimately untouched by the worst parts of the world, the worst parts of being human. He was sort of over it all. He was sort of human, but he wasn't the kind of human that would like have irritable bowel syndrome or something. He was mostly human, but he wasn't the kind of human who would struggle to make a decent chair his first couple attempts as a carpenter or would feel tempted by a really pretty lady walking by the shed. What's cool about Jesus is that he was above it all. He didn't even cry when he was a baby. But friends, just the opposite is true. We know that God's love for us is unimaginably vast because he was willing to become a baby that cried. He was willing to feel the discomfort and indignity of having a human body that feels uncomfortable, that malfunctions, that is kind of gross. The incarnation of God is so awesome because Jesus suffered and was tempted in every way that we are. Now, the Bible does say that Jesus was without sin. So if I was trying to do a sympathetic reading, maybe the lack of crying is supposed to show that Jesus wasn't like a sinful baby. But it doesn't really do it for me because I don't think that a baby that cries when their nap is interrupted is sinning. They're crying because it's a brutal world out there, a world where swatting cloths are itchy, where barn animals won't let you sleep, a world that will persecute and hurt the only sinless human in history as he grows from a baby into a boy and into a man, even going so far as to crucify him on a cross. So personally, I think the baby Jesus wailed his head off in the barn because he was truly human. He was a real baby and babies cry. 
So actually, every time I sing Away in the Manger, even that time that I was singing it because I lost a bowling game, when we get to the second verse, I change the lyrics just a little bit. I sing the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, and little Lord Jesus, much crying he makes. The third and five, or the second song, excuse me, is uh, Christmas Shoes. Um, does anyone know this song? It's not a hymn. It's more of a popular Christian-y song, Christmas Shoes. It's about a little boy who goes to a shoe store, I guess on Christmas Eve, to buy some really pretty shoes for his mom, who is at home dying of cancer. Uh, and when he can't find enough money in his pocket, then the narrator of the song, who is a guy that's waiting behind the kid in line, gives him the rest of the money, and the boy takes the shoes back to his mom. It's, it's kind of a song that People tend to love it or hate it, sort of. Like, my wife thinks that it's way too sappy and sort of actually emotionally manipulative, the kind of song that is just doing everything that it possibly can to make you cry. Um, I sort of have a sweet spot for uh, sappy emotional songs, so I still turn it on, you know, at least once a year, and my, you know, my eyes well up uh, a little bit each and every time. But there's one line at the end of this song that has always sort of caught my attention and has made my biblical imagination senses just go, I, I don't know if that's quite right. It's after the narrator has decided to pay for the kid's shoes, and the kid runs home to his poor mother, and the narrator thinks to himself, I knew that God had sent that little boy to remind me what Christmas is all about. So somehow, in the view of this song, the interaction between the man and the boy is, quote, what Christmas is all about. And in one sense, I get what he's saying, that at Christmas we should be thinking about others, trying to do good, selfless deeds, rather than selfishly hoarding more and more presents and material goods for ourselves. And that's all, that's all well and good. But is that what Christmas is all about? There's no mention in the song about baby Jesus, Emmanuel, God come to earth as a human in order to continue the plan of redemption that began as soon as Adam and Eve fell in the garden. There's no reference to the actual story of Christmas. And, you know, personally, that's what I think Christmas is all about. This may seem like really nitpicking here, or that I'm some kind of monster who wouldn't have paid for the kid's shoes, but I don't think that it is, and I would definitely pay for the shoes, just for the record. There does, however... I think, seem to be a pretty consistent impulse within American Christianity, particularly, honestly, in mainline denominations like Methodism, to reduce Christianity to doing nice things. Being Christian means being nice to people, giving to charity, buying the shoes if you happen to be behind a poor kid whose mother is dying of cancer on Christmas Eve. And in one sense, yes, it does. James, in a sermon series that we did just not too long ago, uh, taught us that uh, our faith should impact what we do and that good works are an essential part of being Christian. But we do all of those things precisely because we serve a particular God and a particular Savior. We only know how to be good because Jesus, the baby in the manger, gives us the example. You can't separate those two things. You can't separate the morals from the story because it's the story, the story of a good God rescuing the world that he loves. We can't separate that from our convictions about what we're supposed to do as children of that God. And Christmas is all about a crucial plot point in that story when God came to take on flesh and to dwell among us. And so... That's what I think Christmas is all about. The third song, and stick with me. Remember, I love these songs too. I don't think that they're all bad or even mostly bad. The second song is uh, Mary, Did You Know? And a lot of people love that song. I love it too. We had uh, our worship leader play it in worship this this past week. Um, Some people though, some people really don't like that song, actually. It's become fashionable in some circles to, to bash that song, to really go after it. And the Mary, Did You Know? haters, they have one chief objection, and it's this. Yes, Mary knew. They don't like the song because they think all of the questions have a single, very easy answer. Yes, Mary knew. And they have a bit of a point. The angel that visited Mary in Luke 1 told her a lot about what was happening. Mary, did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod? Well, yeah, the angel told me that he was gonna that he was the son of God, so, so that makes sense. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day rule the nations? Yep, yep, the angel mentioned that too. His kingdom will never end, I remember. What about that your child who you delivered will soon deliver you? Yes, yes. Angel set savior of the world. I remember all of that. Yep. Yep. 
Furthermore, the portion of Luke 1 that we read for this morning, it's called the Magnificat. It's a song that Mary sings after the angel has visited her and after she's compared notes with her Aunt Elizabeth. And it's super interesting because it makes clear that Mary knew a lot of what was going on, even more than the angels had told her. She seems to have had a unique insight in the significance of the baby in her womb that the other characters, Joseph, the shepherds, the wise men, did not. In her song, Mary draws out several themes from the Old Testament, God's concern for the poor and the lowly, God's covenant to Abraham, God's love for Israel, and she connects all of them to the work that God is now doing through her and the baby Jesus. Mary clearly had a robust biblical imagination. She knew more than anyone else what that baby in her womb meant for the world. And so, the Mary Did You Know haters are concerned that the song takes one of the most awesome, intelligent, faithful, and powerful female characters in the Bible— and makes it sound like she's just totally clueless, that she had no idea what was happening. Now, I'd like to offer a quick defense of the song. I think that what the haters are missing is that the questions are meant to be rhetorical. The song isn't genuinely and earnestly asking Mary those questions in order to, like, quiz her on how well she remembered what the angel said to her, or to figure out whether or not she was intelligent or not. They are rhetorical questions. They're used artistically in order to allow the singer, to allow us, when we sing that song, an opportunity to wonder imaginatively what it must have been like to have the Creator God asleep in your lap. The point is to illustrate just how incredible it must have been to give birth to the Creator of the universe. No one is trying to insult Mary's intelligence here. So I think, I personally think that we should definitely keep singing, Mary Did You Know? And we should keep using that song as a way to express our own sense of wonder and amazement that the God who, as the book of Job says, gives orders to the morning and causes the dawn to know its place. That's the same God that Mary held in her arms as a human infant. That is just a mind-blowing reality, and the song does a good job at helping us express our wonder at it. But then, you know, afterwards or before or whatever, we should definitely take some time to read and study the Magnificat. It actually gets overlooked, I think, in some Christian circles. We should remember that Mary was an intelligent and insightful theologian who seems to have realized more than anyone else in the Christmas story, save maybe the angels, just who this baby was and what he was all about. We should remember that, yes, yes, Mary knew. And so when you conclude listening to this podcast this week, I'm going to recommend that you look up a version of Away in a Manger and sing Away in a Manger. And when you're singing, Uh, you know, you know the kind of words that I will be singing when we get to the last verse. I already told you how I changed the lyrics, but I don't want you to just automatically sing what I was going to sing, what I would sing. That's not the point of all this, right? For y'all to just default to whatever I say. The point is to help you get better at employing your own biblical imaginations. We have some really dedicated, insightful Bible readers in our congregation at Westminster, and I know that listen to this podcast, who have been reading the Bible a lot longer than I have. So as you uh, wrap up this podcast by listening to a Um, a way to manger. Use your own biblical imaginations to uh, decide how you will sing that song. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Words podcast brought to you by Grifton United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to our podcast, sharing the episode with a friend, or making plans to visit us on a Sunday morning at 11 a.m. in our sanctuary on McRae Street. We would love to have the opportunity to greet you in person. If you have any feedback, comments, or questions, you can email me at cpunt at nccumc.org. God bless.